pray with me. Father, thank you for the stirring truth that we have sung together today, that it's true, that it's from the Bible, that we can build our life on it, that we can count on it, that we can uh, live under the mercy. Thank you that we have been able to participate in missionary things that go around the world like Phil was talking about. What a blessing to think about that and the little ones uh, and the families that will be blessed with the gift and also have the truth of the gospel uh, given to them. I pray your blessing on that. Pray for those in our church that are in need today. And and there are many folks with really uh, uh, difficult physical problems and illnesses and and diseases and injuries, and we pray for them. We pray for those who are helping those who are troubled, um, and they're troubled because of the help that they're rendering to those who are in, in, in distress. Uh, we pray, Lord, for our Sunday school and for each of the teachers in our Sunday school as they prepare their lessons, even for a small cluster uh, on Sunday, they'd be encouraged and that they would devote themselves to that and bless them for that. For those who uh, work with their hands and labor to fix the building and make everything work and make it cool when it's hot outside and warm when it's cold outside. And thank you for the people that brew the coffee and thank you for the people that uh, give and, and help uh, to sustain the work of the ministry. Thank you so much and bless those who lead us in worship and got, uh, point us Godward. How wonderful is that? And uh, that's what we want to do today. We want to be quiet before you and acknowledge that we're in need of your favor and blessing, that you are the one true God of the whole world and all of time, and nothing that our, our breath is in your hands, our lives are yours, and you are in control. You will judge your enemies one day, and you will reward those who flee to you for mercy, and we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that today. We pray for our young people that have, have been to camp this summer, that the things they learned would stick with them and that be a sweet taste to them all of their lives. I pray for those who are yet to go, even some that don't know the Lord, that they would be saved and the gospel would be very sweet to them and help keep them safe, watch over them in traveling back and forth and bless those who made it possible for them to go. We, th- we thank you for our children's ministries that are happening right now and what's happening on Wednesdays and the creativity and the energy that's been put into that. So grateful for our ladies' ministries and our Bible studies and prayer groups and we pray your blessing on them, our visitation ministries. Lord, you know my heart. I'm going to leave stuff out. But you don't leave things out. You don't forget anyone or anything that's done in your name. And we ask your help now as we open your word. We love your word. We so love your word. We so depend on your spirit enlightening our hearts to the truth of your word. And we wish to finish our race with faithfulness, as our song said. And we know that the the, uh, means of grace, the the teaching of the word, the public teaching of the word, we know that our private uh, engagement in the word of God, our, our, our meditation on the word of God is critical to that. Our prayers are critical to that. But none of that would happen without your spirit. So we thank you for your work of your spirit in us. For those who are here today, I pray that our 
away from Christ, that have drifted away from faithfulness, uh, away from, they're, they're distracted with other things, they're, they're giving their attention to other things. Capture their hearts, I pray. Lord, before, Lord, we, we'd rather give you our hearts eagerly than, than seek you because we're in desperate trouble, but either way, Lord, we, we pray that you would capture our hearts. We want you to be first place as, as you are in the world, and you want we want you to be first place in our hearts. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm fresh back from camp. You probably know, preached 10 times uh, from Sunday to Sunday, and, and so I'm going to be resting deeply this afternoon, but not for a couple of hours. I mean, just kidding, not for a few minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a young lady came to me at camp this week, a precious young lady. She said, you know, I've, my parents are Christians. They put me in a Christian school. I'm, I'm a Christian, but people tell me I need to have a faith of my own. How can I build a faith of my own? How can I have a faith of, of my own? She said, how do you do that? And I said, well, I said, you're really asking a great question. You're asking the right question. And I smiled and I, and I said to her, um, you will one day, and think about this, you will one day enjoy him forever or face his judgment. So it's a pretty serious business that you have a faith of your own because you will one day enjoy him forever or you, you will face his judgment. I told her that uh, life will turn hard for her and that she will face challenges in her faith and that she puts her hope in God and doesn't um, give in to despair and turn her back on God. She'll forge her own strong faith and write her own testimony a chapter at a time. I told her the older that she gets, the more chapters that she'll add and the sweeter the story will become. And there will be dark tunnels, deep valleys, hard places, but there will be beautiful mountain passes as well as ugly, dangerous enemies. But in the, it will end well in a city celestial hovering over a garden-like new earth. I told her a bunch of other stuff too, but that's just some of the stuff I told her. I also said that she could be encouraged to know that God cares about her and he is going to arrange circumstances to, that will strengthen her faith. Not all those will be fun. Not all those will seem like they're kind of neat when they happen, but that's just the way that God works. Now, Wednesday night this week, we did what we call chapel in the woods at the camp I was speaking at. They have a tradition where they take the girls one place, they take the boys another place, and it's in the woods. So we, we go to chapel in the woods, and the way they do that, every little group is separate in the woods, and they all come in on their own, uh, one at a time, one group at a time, and they're instructed ahead of time to be silent before God, and, and to come walking in silently, be reverent and thoughtful, and, and it's a beautiful thing. So we're out in the, in the woods, and the bird song, and at dusk, and it's a, it's a vesper service in the woods, and, and it's taken very seriously. It's a wonderful time. We gather, and then um, the, the leader gives a little talk. John Ford uh, was the leader this week in, the, in, in, in our group, in the senior high group, and, and he gave a little uh, encouragement to the young men that were gathered there, and, and the worker young men. And so it was a lar large group of young men that were gathered on the hillside out there by a fire. And then uh, a fellow named Luke played the guitar, led him in some worship choruses, uh, and the night fell. It was a cool night, uh, beautiful uh, and uh, beautiful night sounds in the woods in the evening as the sun was going down. But then the leader came back up before I spoke, and that was unusual because it's not what they normally do. John came back up. Again, I, 
I was kind of thinking, what's, what's up, you know? And he says to them, pay attention, please. Pay attention. He said, when you're out here in God's creation, you, you never know what you're going to see. And then he just kind of wove this foreshadowing out there. And I thought, well, that's odd. Nobody's ever done that before. And then I got up and I started, I prayed, seeking God to tell me what not to say because I have, you know, so many things to say. Like my, my introduction here is going to be long because it's important, just so don't, don't freak. But, um, but, but uh, I prayed, Lord, what, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to not say? And then I started into my talk and it was kind of dramatic flourish. A kid goes, raised his hand. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I thought to myself, your timing couldn't be worse. You know, you, you got your hand up there while well, I'm kind of like ramping up for a big talk. But then I thought, well, it's not my camp, it's his camp. So, well, yeah, yeah, what? He said, Pastor, he said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but, but look behind you. Next week, I will tell you what happened. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah, I, I, so I turned, and there was this a beautiful, adorable little fawn standing there right behind me, in a few paces behind me in the woods. And then all the guys went, oh, except the ones who couldn't see it, they would go, where is it, where is it? And they were like, it's over there. There's a stump, and there's to the right of the stump. David reminded me a lot of going birding, and I'm like the dumbest birder. So I'm like, I can't see the duck-billed cuckoo or whatever it was, <laughs> yellow, yellow-billed cuckoo or whatever it was. And they're like, they're, birders are really nice people. And they were like, it's to, the right, it's, it's to the right of the big tree. Just look at it. But it was the way it was, the guys were going, it's just to the right. Oh, then everybody's, I can see it. Then it was like, oh. And the little fawn just walked around for a while. And we just thought, okay, this is what God has us here for right now. And we just watched that little fawn. It was so beautiful. And then the fawn went away. And then I turned back and I said, you are never going to remember what I said tonight. And they laughed, and I said, but you are never going to forget what you saw. Because there is a God up in heaven who loves you and wants to make himself known to you. And he arranged that for you. And I told that girl, I said, God will arrange things for you. You won't like all of them, but you want to recognize the unseen hand of God arranging things so that your faith will grow. I said, when I was a kid, I had the same thought about like having my own faith because my parents were devout Christians. And so why wouldn't I be, you know, they're Baptist, I'm Baptist. Why wouldn't I be? I mean, they are. What if I was something else? And I remember sitting in a high school study hall in Greenville, Ohio, and thinking, well, I think I'll read apologetics so that I can study my own faith. And I told her it helped me at that age to study apologetics some, and I read about four really good books on the historic geographic reliability of the New Testament records, especially the abundance of manuscript evidence for the historical accuracy of the New Testament. And as a kid, kind of read a lot of that, actually. Um, I read a little book by Josh McDowell called More Than a Carpenter, which I recommend to you. It's a real simple introduction to that. It has a little section on the manuscript evidence of the New Testament, why the New Testament's reliable. It has uh, awful, clear uh, logical teaching on why we, we know that the claims that Jesus made about himself are credible and true. 
I read that. Then I read more by Josh McDowell, kind of read over my head, evidence that demands a verdict, more evidence that demands a verdict, which was about the documentary hypothesis, which I still don't really fully understand. Kidding. Um, but, but there was that, read about that, read um, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I told her it wouldn't be bad for you to read apologetics. Um, uh, and uh, be- became convinced, you know, on my own, that the New Testament record of what we knew about Jesus is historically reliable. Um, but there's that. Now, the rest flows out of that. If Jesus rose, is, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and he did what the Bible says he did, if he claimed to be God, and if he rose from the dead, I believe everything he said. And my faith is strong because it's in him. But now, what we're talking about here is an Old Testament book today. And Daniel has spent time, you, in the next chapter, we're going to see that Daniel goes to the lion's den. But, but Daniel has been in the critics' den for years. And a couple of people, Sir Robert Anderson, Josh McDowell, that I talked about, have written books. Daniel in the critics' den. Fascinating books. Because what, here's what happens. There are those that have attacked the book of Daniel because it's such amazing forward-telling prophecy that if it is true, they have to receive the whole book as the Word of God. And they are willfully, some willfully want to do their own thing, so they don't want to be under the authority of the Word of God, so they've got to explain it away. Or there are people who are just sincerely skeptical, and there are other people who have been kind of brainwashed or taught or trained in a secularist kind of viewpoint, in a materialist viewpoint that, that miracles are impossible, the supernatural is impossible. And ironically, some of those people have been religious people, if you can imagine, whole big chunks of the Christian, that what, what was the Christian church, have been pulled off into apostasy because they rejected, if you can imagine, the supernatural, the possibility of miracles. And so people have actually, clerics and scholars and, you know, erstwhile Bible scholars have actually written books against the possibility that Daniel is written by Daniel or was written when Daniel, when the Bible says it was written. But what's fascinating is the more that you dig on those things, and we'll see three of those things in our text today, the more that you dig on these things, the more likely you are to uncover something that makes your faith in the Bible stronger and not weaker. And every time, and and we've been skipping a lot of them, and we'll kind of go and we'll, we'll We'll, we'll list them all together. But today I'll, I'll just show you three uh, in, our, in our text uh, that are examples in the text that we just read that uh, at first when you look at them, they may seem confusing. And then when you, so, they, so they've been the, the, the focus of the skeptic's criticism. But then when you just study a little bit more deeply, what you discover is not only is the biblical record true, but it's pinpoint accurate history. It's specific accuracy there, the, the scriptural account. And so to dispense with a lot of conversation that we could have and maybe come back to another day, I would just say, because the remarkable prophetic accuracy and detail of Daniel, those who deny it or wish to deny the possibility of the supernatural are going to claim it's not written by Daniel or it's not written hundreds of years before Christ. But no one suggested that Daniel was not the author of Daniel. Uh, No one suggested it wasn't written when we know it was written until theological liberals rejected it at the turn of the century 
when they begin to introduce what they call higher criticism. The Jewish canon includes it. Christians have always included it as legitimately written by Daniel in, in the time that it says it was written, hundreds of years before Christ, accepted its authorship up into the 19th century. Josephus, the Jewish historian, and, and not, a, not necessarily a believer, accepted the historicity of, of Daniel. The Maccabean intertestamental books accept it as, the, as what it says it is. Ironically, you know, in a few chapters, we're going to meet Alexander the Great in prophecy ahead of time. And when he was introduced to the book of Daniel, he saw himself in it. He recognized himself in the book of Daniel, which is shocking. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirm it, that the Essene community that lived in the Qumran community, the Essenes that lived in the Qumran community had hidden away these scrolls. You've heard the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls also confirm the timing of the book of Daniel and the authorship of the book of Daniel. Now, my wife and I were talking about this last night, and she says, I don't need to know any of that because I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and I think I'm in the majority. And she was pretty cocky about that last night. She was pretty sure she was in a majority and that I didn't even need to say this and that I could save that time. And, and so I tried to abbreviate that as much as I could, honey, at, at your advice. But it, it does kind of, it is kind of fun. I have a professor friend who has a lake property out here in our counties from Detroit area, but he's got lake property. And if you're a young person or another person and you like to talk about apologetics, he loves to talk about apologetics. He probably thinks a little bit more of it than I do. He, he loves it. I, I think it, and he, he would say this. He said, apologetics is a fun way to put a stone in the shoe of the skeptic. Just kind of make him a little uncomfortable. I think it's also kind of like good, clean fun for Christians and for a young person that's examining their own faith. It's, but apologetics, arguments that the Bible could be true, are not the way the Bible deals with faith. It's much more straightforward in the Bible it's like this. You read the Bible, and I think this is probably what Lois is getting at. You read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit confirms the truth of the Bible in your soul, and you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, or the day star rises in your heart, and the Bible is self-authenticating. And so there'd be a whole group of guys, that, men and women, that would call themselves presuppositional apologetics. They don't worry much about the evidential apologetics or could the Bible be true or did they dig up this or dig up that? They're just like, the Holy Spirit confirmed in my soul that the Bible is true and I'm ready to die rather than to deny it. So we come to the book of Daniel and I had to bring that up because of these three things that we notice over and over again. The book of Daniel's been thrown in the critics' den, and it's survived the lines of higher criticism, and it's emerged unharmed, and often the historic reliability of Daniel has been confirmed by archaeological finds, so that when you go to study the attacks of the skeptics and you research the apparent inaccuracies, you usually, almost always discover that the authenticity of the book is deepened or it's strengthened. It's stronger proof that the Bible is the Word of God. Here's a quick example from our text that we read today, the historic existence of King Belshazzar was challenged because for a long time, the only place you could read about that was the Bible. And so usually, often, a skeptic is going to say, well, it's only in the Bible. We're not sure we trust it. It was only in Josephus they would they trust it. But if it's only in the Bible, 
and my, my bias on that is because they're rebels against God and don't want to obey God, so they have to shoot holes in the book that demands things of them, and that one day God's finger is going to come out and write and chisel judgment in stone against them. And so they're saying, I don't believe the Bible, I reject the Bible. But nonetheless, they say, well, only the Bible says there is a Belshazzar, but now the, uh, the, the, the Nabonidus cuneiform was discovered. You can look this up on the computer and see pictures. It's an amazing find where there are probably 27 additional extra-biblical places in history that list that Belshazzar was a real king. And so now they've dug in and caught up with the Bible. That's one example. There is this, uh, in our text today, we read about the handwriting on the plaster. Oh, like there's a, when they discovered, there's a book on, there's an interesting book on this. It was written about 1840, I think, 1850. And, it, and they did a dig in Babylon, discovered the, this, the hall that this was probably in. And it's interesting because in the alcove where the dais would be set up, there is a plaster background, but the rest of the hall isn't plaster. And the Bible is very specific that the handwriting is, the, the, the candlestick is here, and the plaster is there, and the handwriting is on the plaster. And they literally dig up a place that would be the place where this would happen, and it has in the place where you would expect it to be a pla single plaster wall. Interesting. My faith doesn't depend on that, but it is, you have to admit, it is good, clean fun. Daniel is offered to be the third ruler in the kingdom in the text, which is sort of interesting. I'm going to get ahead of myself because it's just so much fun. Daniel gives a long speech to King Belshazzar, gives a long in-your-face speech to him, and the king says, I will make you the third ruler in the kingdom. I'll give you a gold chain around your neck, and he says, you can keep your stuff. Because if you pay attention, the reason is because uh, Daniel's like, that stock isn't rising right now because your kingdom is just a few hours from being gone and your life is about a few hours from being over. So being the third ruler in your kingdom is not that big of a deal because it's not a very long gig. I'm going to hang out with Darius. He's the next guy. in line. But I can say that. It just kind of, you can read that pretty easily into the text. But they say you can be the third ruler and everybody says that's an odd thing. Why wouldn't he say you could be the second ruler? Because the text doesn't say that Belshazzar appears. If you didn't know a little bit more, it might appear that Belshazzar was the direct descendant there uh, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, that his son, but he's not. He is, Nebuchadnezzar is his father in the sense of he's his progenitor. And there are a number of kings. Between. Moody's commentary writes it like this. Developments in Daniel 5 took place some 23 years after the events in the previous chapter. Nebuchadnezzar died 562 B.C. shortly after this time of insanity and subsequent repentance. That's chapter 5, right? 4, sorry. After his death, a series of intrigues and assassinations resulted in several obscure kings ruling Babylon until Nabonidus took the throne, 556 to 539 B.C. Earlier critics questioned the historicity of Belshazzar since he was unknown in secular documents. However, beginning in 1914, 37, did I say 27 earlier? I correct myself. 37 separate archival texts have been discovered documenting the existence of Belshazzar as the crown prince. So he offers the third place in the kingdom because he is a co-regent with Nabonidus. He can't offer the second place. It's already taken. Nabonidus is out of town. Secular history confirms that. Did you track with that? In other words, in three examples in this text, skeptics have said that can't be true, that can't be true, that can't be true. 
And then archaeologists said, dig a little deeper, and you'll catch up with the Bible. And when they dig a little bit deeper, even unbelievers confirm, yes, the Bible is accurate. And one day we're going to find out everything the Bible said is true. And it won't take any digging because Jesus is going to appear. Nonetheless, I say, go ahead and read apologetics. Study answers in Genesis. Read more than a carpenter. Read mere Christianity. Read evidence that demands a verdict. Read the case for Christ. Read the case for faith by Lee Strobel. If you're really serious, read more evidence that demands a verdict. Read Tim Keller's two books on apologetics. Sit down with one of our elders. Pick their brains. I know a professor out there that will talk with you. Read Francis Schaeffer if you like a philosophical approach. There are all kind of fascinating answers for any question that you have. Don't let some somebody with an axe to grind with God and a sophomoric attitude tell you that the Bible can't be trusted because the Bible can be trusted. Now, we need to look at this drama. It unfolds in six acts. Number, act number one, I call it a drunken, immoral, blasphemous feast. Belshazzar makes a great feast for a thousand lords and he drinks wine in front of the thousand. The idea, almost like he drank wine again, almost like drank wine against the thousands. Like, it's almost like they're trying to outdrink one another is the idea there. Now you understand that in the context here, some time has passed from chapter 4 to chapter 5, and the Medes and Persians have besieged the city, and they've besieged it for two and a half years. They've been unable to breach the walls of the city, and the king is proud of his defenses and probably trying to distract himself from his inevitable fate, and he throws a big party to a false god, and he does something no king has ever done before. He puts an extra special debauch on it, a special twist of debauchery, along with the drinking. And when he tasted the wine, verse 2, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought. You should suck in your breath right now in reading this. It's like you are not really going to take the things you found in the temple, the true and living God, and blaspheme with them? He brought them, king and his lord, his wives and concubines might drink from them, verse 3, and they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and wives and his concubines drank from them. And it gets worse. Look at verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. Now, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar never did on his worst day. Probably nobody ever had before. So he, in a besieged city, with a threat of the Medes and Persians taking over his kingdom, throws a drunken bash with a thousand people and plays drinking games and gets the accoutrements from the temple of the one true living God and openly, flagrantly blasphemes God publicly. Are you paying attention in America today? Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention that people are becoming bolder in their blasphemy than ever before? And then, let's act one, a drunken, immoral, blasphemous feast. I, I think 
Belshazzar has got the Scarlet O'Hara syndrome going on. You remember how that ends and Gone with the Wind? Something terrible's happening. I got a little bit of that in me. And she says, I'll just think about this tomorrow. Belshazzar's like, yeah, I know that the enemy surrounded me, but I think I'm going to have some wine and just, you know, mock the God of Israel first. Just anything to distract me from what's going on. I'll think about that tomorrow. But there's not going to be any tomorrow for him. Act two, God shows up. Verses five and six. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand. Now, if a hand appeared on the wall and started to write, it would freak you out. Especially if you had a guilty conscience and you were currently blaspheming God. And what is the, that's what it says, verse 6, king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave away. His knees knocked together. Act 2, God shows up. King is scared again. In the stories of Daniel, the king gets scared a lot. You ever notice that? King can't sleep tonight again. King's scared again. King's, king controls everything, except when he's not. And he's scared again. He can't sleep. And so what does the king do when he's scared and he doesn't know what to do? You guys need to be a good audience, a good, a good student, and you, should, you need to know the answer to this. What does the king always do in these stories that Daniel's been telling, these events that Daniel's been accounting, these accounts that Daniel has given to us of the history of the time? What is, what is it that they always do? Exactly. Call in the, you said it. You call in the dream team. And they're like 0 for 4 at this point. They're worse than my little league team was. We, we tied Lakeview 17-17 one time. They've lost every time. So here they come. The, the king calls loudly, bring in the Chaldeans, enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and shows me the interpretation, be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and be third ruler in the kingdom. This is bravado. This is whistling in the graveyard. He's going down and he's passing out gold chains. The king's wise men came in and, oh, guess what? They could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. They're like, it's all Greek to me, or maybe it's Hebrew. What is that? I don't know what that is. King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. So now he's even scared her. And his color changed. Must have changed another color. And the lords were perplexed. Now the queen, the queen mother probably, because of the words of the king. And by the way, we just moved into Act 4. So we've got Act 1, the drunken and moral blasphemous feast. Act 2, God shows up and writes on the wall. Act 3, dream team is summoned and strikes out again. Act 4, queen mother makes a suggestion. Verses 7 uh, through 9. And she says, what about Hebrew spirit-filled guy? Guys, remember him? Belshazzar's like, I was always going to get to know him, but I never have. Huh. So uh, the queen, verse 10. O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, and she describes him in this way that the last chapter, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Something about that young Hebrew guy. 
Days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, your progenitor in other words, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because he had an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems. Were found in Daniel. The king named him Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So they call for Daniel. Enter Daniel. This is um, the the uh, this is the Act Five. King meets the prophet of God, and this is where the plot gets really thick. Daniel is summoned. Verse thirteen. Daniel has brought was brought before the king. King answered and said to Daniel. You are that Daniel of the exiles of Judah, uh, whom the king my father brought from uh, Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. That light and understanding, excellent wisdom are found. He's trying to find his tongue. He doesn't know how to say it. He doesn't understand what it's like when the spirit of God, when the spirit of the one true living God is on a person. But he knows there's something going on with him. Verse 15, now the wise men enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't show me. The interpretation. This is like a same song, second verse, fourth verse. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make note of me the interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple. You have a chain of gold around your neck. You'll be the third ruler of the kingdom. I'll print money for you. I'll, I'll print Babylonian money for you as fast as I can. <laughs> now, Verse 17 gets super interesting because you can go from 17 to 28, and who is speaking? Daniel, good answer. Now Daniel's going to speak, and he's not going to stutter. King is stuttering. King is repeating himself. King can't get control of himself. The king is saying stuff he's heard, and, and he's afraid, and he's changing colors. And bold Daniel strides in, looks at the king, and says, you can keep your stuff. And listen to what he says. But listen to Daniel's boldness. He has met, this king has met a man who Jesus calls a prophet of God. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Now, I'm a public speaker. Let me tell you what would happen if a man is called before the king, everybody's going to stop and watch. And they're going to listen for the first words out of his mouth to be something deferential. Oh, King, live forever. May the, what I'm going to say, may it never happen to you. Every time Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar, that's the way he talks. When he comes before this king, he says, keep your gifts. And give your rewards to somebody else. Like, I got something to tell you right now. You got to kind of like it. It's like, Daniel squares his shoulders, and he looks the king in the eye, who has just blasphemed the one true God of the world. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him that, yeah, I'll tell you what God said. Verse 18, O king, most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, let's have a little history lesson, he says, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty because of the greatness that he gave him. All people's nations and languages trembled before him, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He's brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew 
that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of mankind, sets, kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, his descendant, Belshazzar, have not humbled your hearts, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought before you, and you and your lords and wives and concubines have drank wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Listen, but the God in whose hand is your breath, whose are all your ways, you have not honored the God who has his breath in your hands, the God who controls your life, you have blasphemed, you have not honored him, is what he says. Brings us to a final act, Act 6, the promotion of the prophet and the end of the king. The golden head of Babylon rolls. So then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed. He, he, he interprets the writing on verse 25. This is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson, the interpretation of the matter, mene, God, has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, the kingdom's divided, given to the Medes and Persians. Belshazzar does, makes good on his promise and clothes him in purple, gives him a chain of gold around his neck and makes a proclamation that he'd be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, in, in profound understatement, says that night Belshazzar, Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And they say there are records in history that what happened is this impregnable city fell because the army diverted the river and marched in under the gates on the riverbed or in the shallow water. And they came and they killed the king that night. Implications. Let's cut to that. God has your reward and he has your judgment in his hand. God will write his, wrote his, Jesus wrote his mercy in his own blood on Calvary. But he will chisel our judgment in stone if we reject him. And if you were the original audience, and Daniel's the original author under the Holy Spirit, and you're in the original audience, you're saying, this is how God deals with those around me who are threatening me, that are blaspheming God. And I don't want to be among them or worship their gods. I worship the God of Israel, the one true God. And I will honor him and honor his worship and be faithful to him because he is God. And, and we've always been saying, where's Jesus in all of this? And chapter one, he was the food and he's the living bread there. In chapter two, Jesus is the stone and his kingdom comes and hits the statue and the feet and takes over everything. And you're in that. When we got to chapter three, we found that Jesus was in the fire, the, the Christophany, the Theophany, the fourth man walking in the fire, and, and, the, and the faithful were with him in the fire, and he was with them in the fire. And then last week, we saw in chapter four that he was the branch that came to life again in the stump of the tree that was cut down in judgment. And today, you can see Jesus in the handwriting on the wall, but he's not writing, I love you. He's writing, you have come up short and you are going to be judged. But if you keep reading, you'll find there is a place. I heard once about a boy that went hunting with his dad and he accidentally discharged the gun, shot his dad. 
His dad knew the, the story may be apocryphal. I haven't checked it out. It's a story for the purposes of understanding. His dad sent him away to get help because he knew he was going to bleed out and die. And he took his own blood and said, I love you, son. Jesus wrote his love in his own blood for you. And if you reject his offer of mercy, you will face his judgment that will be written by his hand in stone. We cannot avoid seeing that those who blaspheme God will face his judgment one day. And so if you're a young girl and you're trying to have a faith of your own, you might remember that that God that you're judging right now is one day going to be your judge. You decide whether you're going to follow God now, but he decides whether he's going to write mercy over your life or write judgment over your life. People that you love, my son Daniel wrote me this morning, he's a police officer, as you know, and he said last night a deranged mother stabbed her 11-year-old son. And he, was, he heard his last word. He said, I can't feel my legs. Danny said, we'll get you to the hospital. You'll be okay. He wasn't okay. He died. 11 years old. Our culture is bleeding out because they've turned away from God. And we desperately have to get the gospel to people before they face the just judgment of God and tell them about the one who wrote mercy in his blood for them. Our sons and our daughters must know that our faith is not a play, a matter of play, a, it's not a plaything to us. Our sons and our daughters must know there is nothing in the world more important than following the one true God. Our sons and our daughters to follow God, to stand for God, to resist the spirit of the age and the seduction of the age are going to have to have the spirit that Daniel had in his spirit. You can't party away the judgment of God. You can't be distracted by learning or, or defrauded by money or seduced by sex or confused by lies or false prophets or frightened by power or lured by privilege or intimidated by erudition. If you're under the mercy, thank God that you've been spared from God's judgment. Worship God. Serve God. He has got your breath in his hand. Eddie, come and pronounce a blessing over the people today. And may God's blessing be yours as you have received his offer of mercy. And we have prayer partners that come to the front of our church every week. Sometimes we're quiet about this, but, but there'll be two folks on this side, two folks on this side. And may, maybe you would come today and pray, uh, take the things of God seriously as we were, Daniel warned the king. Was it possible the king at that last moment could have repented when he saw the handwriting? We don't know. What we do know is you can. And you can get the message of mercy out to people who need it. And I know that most of you are already believers. You're convinced. You're God's children. I know that. But my, my exhortation as a pastor in studying this text today would be then, take this seriously. Take the things of God so seriously and the message of God. Get it to people. May God bless you as you do that. But if you still have questions or you need somebody to pray with you or you want to set up an appointment, somebody to walk you through to be sure that you're saved, and that you're not under the judgment of God, if he would come back today or you would die today, talk with one of us, and we can explain to you how you can rush under the mercy of God right now, today. Pray for us.